0: Welcome everybody in my listening audience. Today I'm with Ken Cohen. Ken Cohen is a traditional healer and health and cultural educator who has lived and practiced indigenous ways for most of his 65 plus years. Though respecting his Jewish ancestry, Ken was not brought up with knowledge of this tradition. Ken was mentored by noted medicine men and women and maintains close ties with his adoptive Cree family. He was one of the first to lecture about Native American healing in US medical medical schools and has been hosted by the Mayo Clinic, Health Canada, the Iskatu and Kumik elders' lodges and numerous First Nations communities. Ken is the author of Honoring the Medicine and recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award in Energy Medicine. In addition, believing that healing and protection of indigenous lands and rights go hand in hand, Ken is an activist and has written about social justice issues in news from Indian country and other media. In his learning journey, Ken has been blessed to receive teachings from first peoples of many lands. Ken speaks the Chinese language and is a noted teacher of Tai Chi and Chinese martial arts. This is what he calls his day job, what pays the bills, as in keeping with indigenous protocols, he never charges money for healing or ceremonial work. How did he accomplish this without being either 150 years old or a dilettante? The secret is dedication, hard work, personal sacrifice, and not being distracted or restricted by a conventional university and its educational requirements. I also wanna add my own note about this. Uh, I think Ken's book, Honoring the Medicine, is the best book out there on native north american medicine and i have read just about every book i knew to read and his is the go-to book for me and i heart i highly recommend it to everybody in the listening audience so ken cohen welcome to the show so nice to see you
1: thank you bob it's great great to be here really an honor to be here and to be able to uh, have a conversation with my old friend and someone who I respect so much for your for your knowledge.
0: Oh, thank you, uh, Ken,
1: and, and thank you for the kind words about my book. But the you know the honor for my book really goes to my own elders, to those who who trained me. And be you know I was very hesitant to write the book because frankly it's a big responsibility. I mean I wrote certainly you know based on my own experience and what elders have taught me, but I. Put myself through my own peer review process that is, you know, if you write an article for a peer reviewed journal, that article gets sent out to your peers, to other people who hopefully have greater knowledge and expertise than you do, and they give critical feedback to the editor who decides then whether the article should be published or not. So what I did still, I was quite uh, insecure about putting out this kind of a book. I sent out the manuscript to A number of noted elders, including Vi Hilbert, the great Lushootseed elder, who uh, was both a a spiritual teacher, a storyteller, and also an academic. She uh, taught the Lushootseed language, essentially the language of Chief Chief Seattle. I sent out a copy to her. I sent a copy to Glisha Bear, a great Cree chief and activist from Flying Dust First Nation north of Saskatoon in Saskatchewan. She's a wonderful Cree elder. And I sent a copy to uh, various Cherokee elders and to, I mean, a whole, a whole bunch of different people. And I had universal encouragement. I remember when I saw Aunt Vi, as I call her, I mean, she wasn't biologically my aunt, but I called her that out of respect. When I saw her during the winter ceremonials in the Pacific Northwest, I, I knew I had to uh, speak to her in person about my book. It doesn't work to get the feedback over the phone with a traditional elder. You need to make the sacrifice and make the journey. So I went went to see her and I said to her, Aunt did you have a chance to look at my manuscript? And she said, you better publish that book. It is very important. And then with Glisha Bear, uh, she actually had a feast in my honor uh, she was in her 80s at the time, and she and her, I think, 90-year-old older sister cooked a venison and Saskatoon berries stew that I will never forget. It was absolutely wonderful. And she had a whole bunch of other Cree people uh, there to both meet me and also to receive healing. She had felt from you know, reading my work that I was a traditional healer, she felt very good about my work, so she invited people for me to, to work on, so that was, that was quite an honor. I had worked on her, and she said it was the first time she had relief of, uh, from pain in her knees in, in many, many years. Uh, and the same thing happened over and over, but still I was uncertain. So one of the, after all the people gave their approval, and I, frankly, I was expecting a slap in the face, you know, some tough love and somebody telling me, uh, you made some mistakes. I was looking for an excuse not to have the book published. And I even invited my adoptive dad, uh, paid for a ticket for him to come down. I was in, I was in Colorado at the time, I paid for a ticket for him to fly down from uh, Saskatoon. And uh, he did ceremony. And during that ceremony, he actually spoke the introduction to my book. And that was transcribed into Cree syllabics. You know, Cree and Cherokee are among the few Uh, uh, languages that have their own syllabic writing system. In the case of uh, the Sequoia syllabary, the Cherokee writing system, uh, that really took part of a lifetime, which in itself is an extraordinary accomplishment for Sequoia to come up with this wonderful way of representing the Cherokee language. As a result, by the way, it brought a degree of literacy and a way of communicating ideas, as well as political and uh, rights issues that was so important for helping to preserve Cherokee culture. And uh, for the Cree people, the syllabary arrived in a a vision. A a medicine man named Calling Badger had a vision in which he was given this way of representing the Cree phonetics. And the system he developed was so flexible that it's even been used to represent other unrelated languages. By the way, for our listeners who are not familiar with the level of diversity in Indian country, because some people might think, oh, what do you mean by other languages? Isn't, isn't there one American Indian language? Don't people speak Indian? Hey, let me tell you, there, there, are, there are 700 remaining sovereign nations, in spite of the attempted genocide by the U.S. government and by colonial powers. There are still 700 sovereign nations in the United States alone. That doesn't include Canada even more if you include Canada. And they are divided into 50 distinct language families. Each family is different one from the other as Arabic from African Zulu, from Italian. 225 distinct languages, 50 language families, and over 5 million American Indians in total in the United States. So there's extraordinary diversity. So anyway, going back to my story, my adoptive dad essentially dictated the introduction in the Cree language. And one of my conditions for submitting the final manuscript for my book was that the publisher agree to publish that as the introduction, because it would be a matter of pride that a book published by Random House would have an introduction in an indigenous language and i know uh, many of my native friends have written back to me that they've been very touched and and i'm so happy that that was included but you know so this this was the process that i went through I'll give you a, it kind of gives you a sense perhaps of who i am or what my values are and then finally i thought well okay people approve but does nature approve do, do my earth other earth relatives approve? Do the stone people approve? Do the plant people approve? So I went out to pray with, with my pipe. And uh, I went on, on a mountain that's about 14,000 foot elevation. Uh, it wasn't the mountain where I had my personal vision quest, but it looks very similar and it's fairly easy access, unlike the... Uh, rather remote location where I had my uh, vision when I was in my 20s. So I went there and I prayed and then I closed my eyes and just listened. uh, With a sort of background hope that I might receive an answer in some form to my question, is it right that I publish this book? And when I opened my eyes ten minutes later I was in the middle of a mountain goat family. They were so close, I could touch them. There was the grandpa mountain goat and grandma and mom and dad and the kids. And there were baby mountain goats going, me, me. I don't know if you've ever heard the mountain goats. Uh, We have them in the mountains in, in Colorado. They're absolutely beautiful. I was standing amongst them as though I was a member of their family. And then I remembered what one of my elders had taught me about mountain goats, that they remind us to stay on the journey, that we have to climb high for our medicine, that sometimes it requires some sacrifice. And I, I had this deep inner sense that I was being approved, that I had kind of uh, paid my dues, and there was no question that I needed to go ahead and submit the book, which which I did. Uh, so, you know, it's been... The book is just one small chapter in my learning journey. It's an expression of some of the things I've learned. It's, it's a work in process. There's no final word in indigenous medicine, as, as you know, as, as I'm sure the listeners know. Uh, there's no such thing as an authority. In fact, I had some arguments with the publisher. They, I don't know if you know this, but publishers have final rights over titles of books. An author can sometimes get proofing rights, or proofing rights over the text, but ultimately the cover art on a book and the title is up to the publisher. I mean, it's ridiculous, but there's nothing much we can do about it. It's one reason why many people are self-publishing, which I did not do. So when I had submitted the book and it was ready for publication, and it was going to go into galley form, I got a phone call from the uh, editor telling me, They didn't like my title. My title of my book was Honoring the Medicine, Principles, Values, Honoring the Medicine, subtitle, Native American Healing. Then underneath that, Principles, Values, and Practices of the Living Tradition. Again, the final subtitle was Principles, Values, and Practices of the Living Tradition. That is, I wanted people to know that indigenous Americans, First Peoples, are still here. They're not in Hollywood movies. They're not in museums. It is a living and still evolving tradition. uh, Native people are part of the modern world. But the publisher didn't like the title. They said, no, we're going to call it Honoring the Medicine. We like your initial title. But underneath that... We're going to say the comprehensive guide to Native American healing. I thought, oh my God, no, you are not. Then they had more meetings and they said, we're going to call it Honoring the Medicine the Complete. First, I think they said the comprehensive guide, then they were going to change it to the complete guide. I said, let me ask you, how do you write a complete guide to a tradition that should be, in that case, representing, as I mentioned earlier, 700 native sovereign nations, and within those nations, each medicine person, man or woman, may be practicing not only a unique cultural tradition, but something that they have personally received mm-hmm. through the Manitou, through the spirits, through Creator. How can anyone represent them? How would, I would not dare to say I represent Indian country. So there's no such thing as a comprehensive guide. I told them, I said, if you, if you give it that title, I want nothing more to do with the book. I will not go on any book talks. I will not participate in any of your attempts at publicity. I want nothing to do with my own book. So they said, well, we'll have to discuss that. So they had more meetings. I mean, already I had, had conflicts with the publisher because they wanted me to remove some of the political things in it. I said, no, you cannot separate politics and the fight for land and rights and life from healing traditions. It's not an academic subject. So they finally agreed to leave those things in there, in the book, even though, as they told me, it's going to be offensive to many people, some of the things I wrote about. I said, good. If, I, if you're telling the truth, it probably is going to be offensive to some people. You know, I, what can I say? I speak my mind. That's, that's, that's who I am. So anyway, they had more meetings and they decided they were going to change the title to Honoring the Medicine, The Essential Guide to Native American Healing. I thought, okay, well, I guess I can live with that. You know, I can interpret that as looking for the essence of, not essential in the sense of, buy this book, you need this book. No, it's looking for the essence of, so that ended up being the title, uh, Honoring the Medicine, the Essential Guide to Native American Healing. But again...
0: I'll I'll say what, what I appreciate about the book is the fact that it's you telling stories about healing because, number one... The oral tradition is so important to begin with, and that's the way knowledge gets embedded in indigenous culture. And secondly, because you're not making any claims about it other than the fact that these have been your experiences directly working with the elders, with the medicine people. And that's what I think comes across with such authenticity and such honesty in the book.
1: Well, thank you, and, and, and stories is what it's all about. I remember one time when I had the, the great honor of speaking to a group of Nehiyaw, that is Cree elders in uh, Northern Saskatchewan. And they wanted me to speak about First Nations medicine. Well, I felt you know, a little bit like I was preaching to the choir, but nevertheless, I accepted the, very, uh, the wonderful invitation. And I was so glad that my adoptive brother Uh, Joseph Naitauhau, who who I just love. He's such a wonderful person. It was his dad who had adopted me. I was so glad that he gave me this important reminder. He said, he took me aside before my talk began. He said, Ken, remember that the elders will respond to stories. Don't give information. You know, share the information in the form of stories, which I did, but I was so happy that he gave me that reminder. And that that's part of also the healing tradition because I know a lot of people think that narrative medicine, as we call it, is something new. That is applying the skills of analyzing a, an English narrative uh, to a patient's personal report and description of their disease. Let me tell you, narrative medicine is very ancient among indigenous peoples worldwide. And when you when you listen to a story, you want to Listen carefully with your spirit ears, as they say, with with all of your senses, and listen to where does the story begin? Where does it end? What characters might be left out? Who are the heroes? What are the challenges in this story? Is there a lesson in the story? How can we bring it to a good conclusion? you know i'm not i'm not saying that these kind of ideas go through the mind of a traditional healer or myself for that matter but if i am with a client this is part of the deep listening that occurs you listen to the story of the disease you listen to what story is this person's life telling and how can i bring it to a better I hate to use the word conclusion, but I think you know what I mean. How can I bring this, make it a, an important lesson for that individual? As an example, there was a, uh, a woman who had inexplicable depression. Uh, she'd gone to a psychologist, she'd gone to a psychiatrist, nobody could figure out why this was was happening. And I asked her when it began, because again, when a story begins also has a lot to do with the message of the story. So she told me, well, you know, come to think of it, the depression was not long after a vacation she took in Arizona. I said, where in Arizona were you? She said, oh, she did some camping out among the saguaro cacti. And she had received a disturbing phone call from a friend uh, I don't want to, you know, uh, I want to preserve her confidentiality, so I'm, I'm changing a few of the details. But basically, what she explained was that she was so disturbed by this phone call that she took a soda bottle and she smashed it against one of the saguaro cacti. And her depression began not long after that. And she looked at me. She said, "Do you think it's connected?" I said, "Yes." I said, "Do you realize you were probably in Tahona Odom." sacred ground, you were you were, of course on indigenous land, all of Turtle Island, all of North America, all the Americas is indigenous land. And I believe that you offended that cactus, you offended that holy being. Think about that saguaro, it looks like a person. I said, I'm, I'm gonna teach you a ritual where you can offer some tobacco, uh, unless you're going back to that place in Arizona, it's not that you're going to have to spend so much money and travel all the way back there, but you need to make amends and ask, ask forgiveness of that, of that cactus. And uh, you can do this through offering tobacco. That's the medicine I use. Some people, if they are themselves from the Southwest, they might use cornmeal or something else. But in terms of the way I've been taught by my elders who use tobacco, I said, just hold some in your hand. Offer to the Four Directions, offer to Mother Earth, to Creator, and express your, your sorrow. Speak from the heart and ask forgiveness of that cactus. Well, she did that and a week later came back to see me and told me, you know, the depression is completely gone. I, I frankly wasn't sure this was going to work. I I, I was definitely... Definitely sensed the connection of my depression with the cactus, but I thought, well, how could just putting tobacco on the ground, how could that do anything? I told you, you know, there are, there are physical causes of illness. There are emotional. There are environmental. And there are also spiritual. There are transpersonal forces at play in our lives. Whether we acknowledge them or not, they are there. And it's not a matter, by the way, of belief system. Some people say, well, this only works if you believe in it. Uh, I don't think so. That is, if you explore your life deeply, courageously, honestly, I think you will find that there are often inexplicable factors in both health and disease so anyway, some of my ideas about the, the story, the story of the illness, the story of our lives, and the connection with healing.
0: And that's a perfect point for us to end on for today, Ken. Uh, this was really very, very instructive, uh, again, using story on a few important principles that I think our listeners can learn from in terms of understanding what what illness is and what healing is. And in our next session, we're going to delve even deeper into that connection and your experience for it. So, Ken Cohen, let me thank you so much for being here for part one.
1: Kinänas komitin. I'm truly grateful.
0: And thank you, everybody, for listening. Please tune in the next time. This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world.